Well, I don't know how many of you saw the movie, The Adjustment Bureau, but it uh, brings up some fascinating conversations, and one of which is exactly, are there really other forces, aliens maybe, you don't know early in the movie, angels maybe, that are adjusting our life, that are forcing us to turn a certain way or change the lights or, or maybe in a different way, making us spill our coffee? And sometimes when you, you hear the themes we're discussing in this series, Coincidental, it may come across the same way. Like, I don't like the idea that people even believe that God is adjusting my plan or recalibrating my life. It doesn't feel like I'm in control. Or maybe it feels very superstitious. Doesn't it? I, like that last song by Moody, the Moody Blues. I mean, it feels very, I got questions about this idea of coincidence or providence or God's sovereign control of the world. It's really strange to me that people think superstitiously that God's still involved in the details of life. You ever known people like that where, you know, they're very religious people who are like, you know, as they're pulling into the mall, they're like, now, God, do you want me to park in this spot or that spot? And you're like, come on, really? And you're thinking, you know, I guess it's kind of nice to know God maybe has got your back, but your parking spot? So I want to try and help you if you've come across this idea to show you some of the benefits of believing in a God who does get involved in the details of life, but not in a really superstitious way or predictive way, but more in a, a grand plan that you can trust with the good and bad of your life. Because imagine, I think for many of us, I think we're searching for a, a deeper significance to our life, a grander plan or meaning or purpose for what we do day in and day out. We use different words for it, but if there is no grand plan or no grand planner, then we're left to, well, I worked really hard, I achieved what I have, I got what I achieved, and the moral of the story is work hard like me. But I think working hard like me is a good starting place, but at some place you work hard and you say, I want there to be something more significant going on, more than just it was random or it was lucky or I worked hard. I want my story to connect to a bigger story. So without getting superstitious about every parking lot and every uh, turn of the corner, what if you could believe, even if you're not sure you believe it yet or will ever believe it, what if you could believe that your life wasn't random? That who you're married to, the differences in your kids, the people you work with, the people you work for, the people you come in contact with that have needs, the, the needs you hear about, what if it wasn't random? What if you'd been positioned on purpose? What if there was a grand plan and you've been placed where you are at this time in life for a purpose? Wouldn't that create a sense of adventure, a sense of a grander scheme to what's going on in your life right now? It's not just about work really hard, party on the weekends, and then go back to work some more. That there was a grander positioning of your life for a particular reason or significance. That's what Esther's going to find today. I think even if you're not quite there, let me show you why you might want to be there. Esther's going to get to the place she says, I know I've been positioned on purpose. Where I am, with who I know, with what I uniquely do for this particular time. Think about your job. Think about where you live. Think about the current projects you're working on, even the current difficulties you're in. What if you could believe, or just for a week tried it out and said, I'm going to think about my life through the lens of I've been positioned on purpose where I am, with who I know, 
with what I do for this particular time. Because if this is true, or even might be true, it turns every day into an adventure. Why did this come across my desk? Why did this situation, why was this need brought to my attention? If I was positioned on purpose, there might be some meaning to the minutes and moments and months and seconds of my life. Those are two aspects of this. The idea that we're positioned on purpose. The first one is that that means that we can be positioned on purpose even in difficult circumstances. See, I like the idea that I've been positioned on purpose in good circumstances. But this means that even when you're going through difficulty, you're positioned on purpose. And here's what's going on in our story. King Xerxes, Persian king. Esther has just been elevated to the place that she is now the queen. She is a Hebrew. She is Jewish. She's not Persian. And yet they have a relationship together. Haman, the right-hand man to the king, is come face-to-face with her cousin, although he doesn't know it, Mordecai. And Mordecai refuses to bow down before him. He just won't do it. Haman is so angry that he's not only going to kill off Mordecai, but every Jew living in the Persian kingdom. This gets Mordecai to the place that he is very distraught. His standing up for what's right, him not bowing down to this you know, sort of self-obsessed um, narcissist, has resulted in a death warrant to all of his friends and family. So, as Haman prepares his plans over the next few months to kill him, Mordecai tears his shirt, which was a sign of, of mourning or weeping, and sits outside the city gate weeping. Well, much to the embarrassment of the queen, some people do know they're related, not Haman. Hey, do you know your crazy uncle, your crazy cousin? It's like every day when everyone goes through the main gates, he's like crying and weeping and wailing, and he's shirtless. Crazy Uncle Mordecai. So she hears about this issue. And a lot of times when we go through difficult circumstances, whether it's embarrassment, whether it's a situation like someone we care about might be hurting, the first step usually is we hear about it. And so she hears about it. Well, she sends her right-hand man, who had helped her get to this position, to go and check it out. So he goes to check it out. And honestly, he goes with some clothes, if you notice. Bring some clothes and let's put it on. She sent garments to him. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing the kingdom. You're the first thing people see at the city gate. You're a homeless guy for crying out loud. Put some clothes on. And he refuses. He will not accept them. He says, no, I'm trying to bring attention to an issue here because there is a great injustice happening. And just because you're in an insulated place in the in the palace that you're not hearing about the poverty you're not hearing about the injustice you're not hearing about the needs i am not going to stop bringing attention to it so he sends the servant back he says he won't put the clothes on and like with a lot of things that come across our life we hear about something initially we may be dismissive or embarrassed but then we feel like maybe Maybe the universe, maybe God is prompting us to investigate it further. And that's what she does. So let me find out some more about this. So she calls Atash, sends him back, and says, well, tell me what's going on. And so he again goes back to Mordecai, says, hey, what's going on? And he says, oh, my goodness, you guys haven't heard. There's an edict to kill off all the Jewish people. And that's why I'm trying to bring attention to that. That's why I'm praying and asking God to intervene here. There's a huge problem here. In fact, Haman, the right-hand man to the king, has personally given 10,000 pieces of silver from his own treasury to have us all killed and plundered. 
So he goes back, tells Esther. Now Esther, she's heard about a need, she's investigated a little bit further, and now she's feeling like, oh, this isn't just a need out there in the world. Now that she's investigated it a little bit further, she's feeling a sense of urgency. Oh my goodness, everyone I know and care about, my family and friends, people in my community are hurting. I've got a sense of urgency that I need to do something about this. And this happens often with us. You know, you feel a particular calling to help out with an area within our community. Maybe we have many people just got back this week from, uh, from Cancun. They felt called to use their vacation time to go down and help uh, build additional facilities down for the poorest to poor in Cancun. We have teams that have been going to, uh, to Belize and are doing work there with uh, people feeling prompted to help out, give medical care to folks who don't have it. People hear maybe oftentimes somebody on our stage talk about Happy Church, which is an area here locally within a state away that we go and we help with. So you hear about an issue, you begin to ask some questions and say, I've always wanted to go on a trip like that. I've always wanted to be part of something more significant than just my job. I love my job, but I also want to be part of a bigger plan. Or there comes a moment when you begin to weigh that situation and it becomes something you could do to something you should do. There's a sense of urgency. And Esther begins to have that urgency because she begins to say, you know what? I feel like I should do something about this. Not just I could, I should. But then she begins to weigh, if I do, I'm in trouble. And here's why. Mordecai had told her, you, you really need to do this. And she says, you know, the king has got this law ever since he kicked his old wife out that you're not even allowed to come into the king's presence unless he summons you. And if not, you sort of off with your, his, her head. And he hasn't summoned me in 30 days. And if I go into his presence unannounced, I could lose my life. And here she is weighing the cost. The best chance I have is if I went to bring this to his attention, if he doesn't kill me, he might extend the golden scepter and then I might be saved. At least I won't be killed. But she's weighing. I really need to do this. But here's the cost financially if we invest in this nonprofit. Here's the cost of my time if I give up my vacation. Here's the cost of serving in the church if I decide to come to one service and serve so that another service that I can participate. You're beginning to weigh the pros and cons of getting involved in this area. And fourthly, she gets challenged. As we go through this process assessing the needs around us, we come to a place we say, well, maybe I've been positioned on purpose for this. So Mordecai sends a message back one more time and says, hey, don't think that just because you're insulated in the royal palace, don't think that you're going to escape this. Sure, you haven't told them that you're Jewish yet, but just know you will not escape this because you're living in an insulated life. And sometimes because we live with people who are at the socioeconomic level we are, they vacation the way we do, we drive the way we do, we can literally be insulated from the needs in the near community around us. And if less we're purposeful, like Esther was, of sending out and investigating further exactly what's going on, we can stay insulated. And Mordecai asks her, he says, what if your rise to queen, what if the king's kicking out the old queen was actually not just a coincidence, but what if God was positioning you like a chess piece on the board of life for such a time as this? He says, but don't think 
just because you're a queen, you're going to escape this. Don't think you can be insulated from these needs in the community. He says, and by the way, God is going to deliver and bring relief to his people. You're like, really, Mordecai? Like, what about your circumstance brings you to that conclusion? Nothing. Everything about your life looks bad, 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 and worse. Yet in the midst of this speech, he says, if you remain completely silent at this time, if you don't choose to step up and help with this need, relief and deliverance will come. It will arise for the Jews from some other place. God is working in the world. And if you choose not to be part of the plan, he'll find somebody else to be part of the plan. I think that's what it means to be positioned in purpose. That God is working in the world around us. And he invites us to be part of his work. And that's where our story and God's story begins to be meshed together. And God's inviting you and I to be part of that. And then he says this famous line from the Bible. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you've been positioned on purpose. Where you are. With who you know. With what you do at this particular time in history. Now, what if you begin to think about your job, your marriage, whether it's a difficult time and God's calling you to be the leader to lead your company to a bigger challenge with what you know and who you know? Maybe things are going incredibly well in your life and God's asking you to say, what does it mean for us to give back to the needs in our community and the needs in our world? We've been born in a particular nation at a particular time in history that's very free and prosperous. What would it mean if you were not just randomly set here, but God placed you here for a reason? As we think about that, we come to the next aspect of this idea, and I think it's the toughest one. Because if we're going to get involved, we've got to wrestle with this. Either I've been positioned on purpose in my life, in my marriage, as the father to my children, or my position is my purpose. And you've probably come across people, they probably haven't said it this way, but people who use their position for a purpose versus people who use their position as their purpose. Usually you see the bad side of this. Here's what it looks like. You know, a woman's working in your company. She's doing incredibly well. The decisions she's making aren't fear-based. She's very courageous. She makes decisions that's for the best of the company, makes some courageous movements into other sectors, and has a tendency to, to push off credit to other people and take more blame than maybe she even needs to because it's for the good of the team. She uses her position for a purpose and begins to move up, up, up in the ranks, and then that person gets to a particular level, and their decision matrix stops. Now they start to make decisions out of fear, like fear they might lose their job, fear they might get in trouble. They begin to, to push off the blame and take more of the credit, right? What happened? That person went from using their position for a purpose, to serve, to do the greater good, to the position became their purpose. And when it became their purpose, they were scared of losing it, scared of somebody else getting too much credit and them losing their job. And now, because their whole life is defined by their title, their car, their perspective, they can no longer do the job of their job because they so need to keep their job. They went from using their position for a purpose to their position became their purpose. And that's really where Esther finds herself. It says, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. All right, I'm open to this. 
I need some prayer. (laughs) She says, I want you to ask Mordecai to gather every Jewish person she knows to pray and fast for me. Fasting is a spiritual discipline where you go without food, not just to lose weight, but it's really almost like a, a notification on your watch. Every time your stomach growls, it's a reminder, oh, that's right, I've got to pray. So for three days, they were gonna, all the people were going to go without food or water for three days so that every time they were hungry, it would be a reminder, we've got to pray for Esther. We've got to pray. She is going into the lion's den. She could die under law, but she's going to risk her life. She's going to use her position for the purpose of saving us. Now, if you're Esther, you think to yourself, well, maybe, maybe I'm doing such good things here that I can't risk my position or risk my life. But she does call out some of her maidservants to pray for her. So there's prayer going on here in community. What do you think I should do? There's prayer going on here for her. What should I do? And this is why it's so helpful to have a community of people who believe that there's something more powerful than just random chance. Because wouldn't you want at least, if there is somebody, to be helping out? People who really care about the struggles you have. And that's what we're about as a church. Inviting God into these decisions. Inviting community into these decisions. When she gets to that moment, she decides, you know what? I could save my position. I could save my life. I could live a comfortable life. Or... I could use my position for a purpose at this time, possibly to save my people. She says, Mordecai, if you get praying for me, I'll have my people praying for me, and I'm going to go to the king, which is against the law. But if I perish, I perish. Mm. I think the only way you get motivated to do this, to risk time, money, comfort, is if you believe you were positioned for a purpose and some bigger plan. Have you heard the story before of Irene Sandler? She's known as the female Schindler. She was a nurse during World War II. She was nearby a community that was holding on to Jewish families before they led them to the gas chamber. She and her group of nurses were not Jewish, and so they were safe. They were comfortable. But they decided they couldn't sit back and not get involved with a problem in their community. And she took her unique gifts as a nurse, and she came to the Nazis at the door and said, Hey, I'd like to come into your village uh, and, and work with the, the, the folks in your camp. Why would we let you in here? Well, there's a lot of sickness going on. If you're guarding them, you're going to get sick. So I'm trying to do you a favor by keeping you from getting sick. Oh, yeah, go in there. So she went in, and she began to work with families. And many of the husbands and and wives had been gassed or killed a day ago, a month ago. It was just tragic. She began to plead with mothers, plead with fathers, please, let me save your children. And she took these children at different ages and smuggled them out of the Holocaust camp. Sometimes in gunny sacks, potato bags. She even put a couple children in coffins and nailed it shut as she was taking the body to the morgue. She died this year. And at great risk to herself, because she could not insulate herself from the problems in her community, she saved 2,500 children. By using who she was a nurse at this particular time at great risk to save people in her life. 
Another example, this is Dunkirk. There's a new movie coming out by Christopher Nolan that tells a story. But if you don't know the story, the, uh, the Nazis were pushing in and they made it to France and Dunkirk. And as they got there, if they could win at this spot, they were going to take over the island of, of England and the United Kingdom. And so there's a group of British soldiers that were holding the last line of defense against the Nazis. And they had a telegraph and they only had time for a real short communication to go back to the mainland in England. And, and they tapped out three words. But if not. Like that's communication. Is that code? It's a quote from the Bible. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are asked by King Nebuchadnezzar, you bow down to me or I throw you into the fiery furnace, they say to him, our God can deliver us, but if not, if he's silent, if he doesn't deliver us, we're still going to stand against this kind of activity. And what those British soldiers were saying in Dunkirk that day is, we know God can deliver us from the Nazis, but he might not. But either way, we are going to stand here and fight against evil. We're going to fight against oppression. We're going to fight against what's happening here. We are going to defend with our very lives if we need to, to keep this evil from coming into our country. What Esther said, if I perish, I perish. I got a confession to make. When I was in high school, in junior high in particular, I was, I was on the chess team. And I feel like it's safe to say that. And I've tried to stay away from a lot of nerdy chess metaphors, but one of the metaphors that most people know in chess is this. If you're going to try and get another team in checkmate, you sacrifice one of your pieces. And one of the most powerful sacrifices is when you sacrifice your queen. Because when you put your queen out there, you can distract the other team because they're so excited about killing off a powerful piece that it may open them up to a checkmate. And that's what's happening here. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. It's a queen's sacrifice, but I'm willing to sacrifice myself, my time, my comfort, my future, if it can ultimately bring a checkmate to the kind of evil that's going on here in the kingdom. To give you a feel of what Esther might have felt like or what a queen's sacrifice feels like, let me show you that classic scene from Harry Potter when a sacrifice needs to be made. Let's watch Like, Ron, it's just your horse. You just fell three feet, for crying out loud, Ron. <laughs> but I think this is where Esther is. She's going, really, I need to sacrifice myself for the greater good. And what comes out of that is the feelings and emotions and fears that happen whenever we're going to step out and try something, whether it's serving other people or adapting to our spouse or saying, I want to take on this tough issue, or even if you know, I lose some credit in the situation, I can't stay insulated. What happens here is that Mordecai does exactly what Esther told him. He's got people praying for her, thinking about her, everything Esther asked. So what happens? That Esther says, all right, I'm going to risk my position for a purpose rather than trying to protect my position. And she comes to the door. And she's standing at that door, and she can see the door where the king is seated right behind the door in his throne. She knows when that door opens, either she's going to die or she's going to get the golden scepter and get a chance. You can imagine the fear. 
You can imagine the moments where you're going to basically go and you're going to fight for the rights of people who you feel like you've got too much blame. They don't have a voice and you've decided to put your reputation and the risk of your company or your organization on the line because you want to be the voice for those who don't have a voice in your organization. And you're standing there saying this is either going to go really well or I started working my resume last night. And the door opens and the king extends the golden scepter to her. She found favor in his eyes. She stands up and now she has this moment. She put on her royal robes. She's in the inner court. The door opens. The king is there. And when he saw her, he extended the golden scepter. And more than that, he says, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now, if ever you are tempted to keep your mouth shut about your Jewish friends that might die, it's now. Think of all the good I can do with all that money. Half the kingdom of Persia. Think of all the good things I can do. If anything, now it's even harder to risk your position. This is your position times a thousand. And this is why it gets hard to use your position for a purpose the more you go up the... uh, the food chain in your company, the more you go up the food chain in your life because there's so much more to risk reputation-wise, so much more to risk financially, so much more to risk in possibly not having job security. If you go and give voice to people who maybe are being downsized inappropriately or aren't given an appropriate hearing, and you've got so much to risk now, and Esther's at the same place, at this point, she could say, hey, I'll take half the kingdom. And thanks for the golden scepter. It's good to see you. Uh, do you want to have dinner tonight? But instead, she continues to affirm her need or desire to be used at this time with who she knows, not just for her own benefit up to half the kingdom, but to rescue her people who don't have a voice. Remember my mom, she was a vice president of a company that did senior home care in Illinois. During my high school years, she just got very, very busy. She was so successful. Every place she went, the place sort of exploded in, in a good way, and, and growth happened. And she trained new managers and recruit new people and move on to the next city. And, and as those years went on, just her, her career path just went up, 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 up. And with that came a lot more travel and a lot more responsibility. And, and she and my dad would, would get together and say, you know, this is really, a few years from now that would be fine. But right now it's just not a good time because we want to be at the kids' events. We want to be involved in this kind of stuff. And, and I remember many conversations where my mom and dad would come to a decision, draw a line in the sand, and my mom would go in and talk to her boss and say, listen, I just can't, I, we would love the job, I appreciate this, but i got to slow down my career path and take a step back because I want to be the kind of mom I can be during these, these critical years. And she would come home for that meeting, say, All right, well, I talked to my boss, and, and he offered me 16% raise. And my dad would be like, we could do an awful lot with 16 <laughs> Okay, and then another year would go by, right? Another year would go by, and then, you know, this really isn't working out. The compromise, the time of marriage, we've really got to go in. Diane, we really need you. You're critical. How about we offer you a 12% raise? And my mom talked about how challenging it was. It's one thing to have your convictions, but it's every time you get that offer of half the kingdom, it's hard to go, wow, I thought I knew what the right thing to do here was, oh, but there's so much good I could do with that money, so much good I could do with that position. And there's the challenge. Money distorts things. Money makes it more challenging to actually keep your bearings straight. 
Well, she has a moment where she could step up, and either here she wimps out or she's strategic enough to know the timing's not quite right. She might be that she's clever enough to know, my husband just offered me a blank check for half the kingdom. If I refuse that and don't take him up on that, it's going to speak volumes to him. So either she's wimping out here or she's saying, this is going to do more to further my case to get a hearing than actually speaking up now. Because what she says is, if it pleases the king, again, look at the honor and respect she uses when she talks. Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So now she tries to get the key players in the room. God's positioned me to know the king and positioned me to know Haman. I know the guy who's trying to assassinate my people. And I'm going to create an environment to have that conversation. But think how risky that is. She's about to put herself in a room with the ancient version of Hitler. The risk level's gone up again. What she has to lose and who she's with. Which is interesting because how, again, is Esther able to do this? And I think the way she's able to do this, the way she has this brave heart kind of heart, is because she knows that her life isn't determined by this kingdom. She knows of another king. And the Bible tells us that God is the king that sets up and tears down kings and kingdoms in this world. And it's only by rooting herself in this king, the one that positioned her here for this time and this place, she's able to stand up against temptation and she's able to stand up against compromise, and she's able to be courageous in fighting for the needs of others in a kingdom that's all about themselves. And later this king, the Bible describes, will come to earth in the form of Jesus. In the same way Esther put on her robe, this king will take off his royal robe to become a human. And this king will march his entire life when his Leaders and followers say, let's make you a king like the kings of the world. He said, I'm not going to be that kind of king. I've come, as Esther says, to perish. And if I perish, I perish. And he marched his way like Mordecai will be paraded through the streets. He's paraded in what's called the triumphal entry. And he's paraded down to a cross. And here on the cross, this king shows a whole different kind of lifestyle, a whole different kind of priority. He says, I will give of my life. I will give of my comfort. I left my comfort in heaven. I left my convenience in heaven. I came to my people who were in trouble. We're not living up to their own standards, let alone God's. And I'm willing to die for them, to sacrifice for them. And I took off the robes of comfort and I put on the robes of crucifixion. Because I'm willing to die for people who have no voice. People who are angry and arrogant. People who spit on me and don't even think I exist. I'm the kind of king that serves people, even my enemies. And it is the spirit of that king that I think gives Esther the courage to say, if there is a God who will risk his position and use it for a purpose, rather than seeing his position covered as his purpose, I've got to go and do the same. So back to you and I. What if you were positioned on purpose? You think, oh, my wife and my husband so different from me. Man, it's just so difficult. But what if God put you in a marriage with somebody so difficult, difficult or different from you to develop something in you that could only be developed in that relationship? Wouldn't that change your perspective on your conflict? What if you have a son or daughter and their personality is so different from yours and it's just hard for you to connect, hard for you to relate? What if you've been positioned on purpose? 
What if the reason I have a son who I didn't know would be autistic until years after we adopted him? What if that didn't just happen? It wasn't just random chance. What if God wanted to use my unique energy level, my unique creativity, my unique problem-solving ability to be able to help and guard and protect this little guy? It changes my perspective as a dad. What if the unique challenges in the world today and in our community and the things you hear about we're doing as a church here, near, and far aren't just things the church is doing? What if it's a chance for you to experience real needs out of our insulated lives that God might call you to have a sense of urgency to be part of that? What if you're positioned on purpose where you are with who you know, the networks you have, the influences you have because of what you do? You don't need to be a missionary, you need a pastor. They just talk to religious people. God needs you with your gifts and your talents as a nurse, as a business person, as a teacher to leverage your position in your job, in your family, in your community for this particular time. Wouldn't it make life an adventure if that was true? And you might say, I don't believe that yet. I don't even think I ever will. Don't keep, stop saying the word yet, Chad. I'm saying, when you do, even get curious about trying it, Every day gets filled with meaning. Because now I'm able to do what Esther could do. Use my position for a purpose, not as my purpose. Just studying in the Wall Street Journal, but a guy who worked his way up, 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 up the uh, chain, and he decided to quit because he wanted to spend more time with his family. Wall Street Journal circled back around him like, I'm sure that lasted a month. And the title of the article was, remember the CEO who quit to be a dad? He's loving it. And I'm not advocating that any of us need to quit our jobs. I'm saying what happens is if you don't, if you're defined by your, by your purpose and by your position, you'll never entertain how to slow down your career path and make other things important. You just won't. Because your position, your title, the size of your bank account, the size of whatever becomes your definition of your life. That's when your position is your purpose, rather than it's being used for a purpose. I was asked to speak at a college class a couple years ago. There's a group of uh, high school, uh, a few high school and a few college students in a mixed summer class. And I said, hey, tell me, what is more spiritual as far as God's purpose for your life? Being a, a pastor, a missionary, a CEO, or a janitor? Pastor was on top. I know, missionary was on top. Pastor was second. Distant, distant, distant third, janitor. Distant, distant, distant fourth, a CEO. I said, you're telling me that you think God uses missionaries and pastors more than CEOs? Yeah. I said, do you guys read Karl Marx in this class or what is this class? I said, so let me tell you this. So you tell me a CEO or business owner who's able to provide incomes for people, for families, can't influence people for God? What about the shareholders at retirement are based on the decisions they make? What about the customers who get goods and services based on what they do for a living? Don't you call companies up and want to have good customer service? Don't you feel served and loved and cared for that? Well, I guess. See, what I just described to you, spiritual jobs and non-spiritual jobs that is not what the bible describes at all that's actually a, a greek teaching called dualism or gnosticism the bible says that whatever you do in word or deed it can all be done with meaning and purpose whether you're a janitor or ceo whether you're a missionary or a pastor 
whether you're a teacher or a mom, you can infuse into your life the meaning that you've been positioned for such a time as this. That's what God wants to infuse into you and infuse into me. So we can have an adventure with him day in and day out. And that's what happens when you use your position for a purpose. But we've all been around people who've used their position as their purpose. I read this article in Fortune magazine, interview with Danielle Vasella. He says, for many of us, the idea of being a successful manager, leading the company from peak to peak, delivering the goods quarter by quarter, it's an intoxicating one. It's a pattern of celebration leading to a belief, leading to a distortion. When you achieve good results, you're typically celebrated. And you begin to believe that the figure at the center of all that champagne toasting is yourself. Many leaders get to the top by imposing their will on others, even destroying people standing in their way. And when they reach the top, they become paranoid that others are trying to knock them off the pedestal. Why would they think that? Because that's what they did. Their position, that next promotion became their definition of success. Sometimes they develop an imposter complex caused by deep insecurities that they aren't good enough and they might be unmasked. To prove they aren't imposters, they drive so hard for perfection that they're incapable of acknowledging their own failures. When confronted by them, they convince themselves and others that the problems are neither their fault nor their responsibility. Have you worked in companies like this? Have you had bosses like this? Their position became their definition. And what happened? They look for scapegoats to blame the problems, and they use their power, charisma, and communication skills. They force people to accept the distortions of reality that they have no issues, that it's not their fault, causing the entire organization to lose touch with reality. Man, I've been in companies like that. And it's all because there was some leader who on the way up was using their position for influence and for a purpose, and then that position became their purpose and they defended it, and they were paranoid about it, and they pulled in the acceptance, and they pushed off the blame, and the whole company got distorted because of it. They began to believe that they were God. What God would say to you and I is only when you recognize that He's a God and you're not can you find meaning. Because either you've positioned yourself where you are, or there's a God of heaven who puts you where you are. And one brings a larger story to your life, and the other doesn't. So as you listen to this next song, I want you to ask yourself, if I become my own God, or do I want to start acknowledging that God, maybe, maybe I want to be open to the idea that you're God and you've placed me here for such a time as this. You know, one of the reasons we get so anxious and worried is because we try to play God. It's all about me. The reason we're so driven is because it's all up to us to get all of our job opportunities. And maybe you just like to be curious and try the idea. Maybe you're not ready to say that God is the God. You're just ready to say he's a God. Well, we believe he's the God. But maybe that's too big of a step for you. Maybe just this week you want to say, I want to believe that there might be a God. And he might have positioned me on purpose. And I want to see what my daily life might look like. If my worry level goes down. If my anxiety goes down. If my sense of drivenness, if I could trust something else or someone else to be part of my planning of my week or my life. Or maybe you're like, no, I'm, I'm past the A-God. 
as you've been talking about what God did through actual history, like this is history, I thought the Bible was here and history was here. You're showing me how God worked in actual history. Iraq and Iran and, and the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and then the time of Xerxes. I've heard of him from history class. I'm ready to believe that he's not a God, but the God. And I want to trust him with my life. If you want to do that, you can just acknowledge that with me in prayer. I'll give you a short prayer you can pray. You can bow your heads if you want. That's helpful. Um, you just say to God this. You know, number one, God, I'm sorry for setting myself up as a God. By taking the credit or passing the blame. And I ask you to be my God. To not only forgive me, but to lead me. And infuse my day, my week, with the kind of meaning and grander story that I've been positioned on purpose. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here today. We look forward to seeing you back next week as we continue our journey into the book of Esther. Thanks again.